Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we say welcome to this CSR pod in collaboration with the Sustainability Business Day in Stockholm 2015. And especially welcome to Christelle Delby from Vodafone. You are Group Head of Sustainability for Enterprise. Very welcome. Thank you. And I have a qualified guest to begin with. You are born in France, you're educated in England, and you got a master's from Sweden. Is that correct? You've done your research very, very well. <laughs> and you, you studied the master's program, the IIIEE program in Lund. That's how, how did you find it and how was it? How did I find the master's or yes. how, do, how did you enjoy it? Well, first, how did you find it? How because it's kind it? of against all odds to be from, born in France, studied in England and then go to Sweden. Well, you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a very, very good question. Um, so I was in my early 20s and um, one summer um, I had to spend the, the summer in Gothenburg because my boyfriend at the time, he was Swedish, was uh, spending the summer there he was so and working. So I was very bored. So I thought rather than, you know, um, not do anything with my time, I'll I'll go and do something. So I decided to go and volunteer for Greenpeace in Gothenburg. And this was the best thing I think I've ever done. So I um, supported a number of projects, met, met a number of very passionate people. And it is then I think I realized I wanted to do something in this space. I mm. wanted to not just have a job to that pays me at the end of the month, but wanted to do a job that gave me a sense of purpose. And very luckily, one of the um, person working at Greenpeace in Gothenburg mentioned that the Swedish government was just creating a master's degree in environmental management and policy um, at the University of Lund. And that uh, the master's was the masters were sponsored by the Swedish government and that they were inviting students from all over the world and I, I could, of course, apply. So I did. And um, I was the only French person in, in the first batch of this master's degree. Hmm. So this is how it all happened. So how was it then? How, how was studying in, in first class, first year in Lund? And that's, that's interesting. Very, very exciting. The, the best thing I think I've I've ever done. Um, first of all, because of the the cultural diversity of the program, so we were thirty students, and we had twenty five different nationalities in the thirty people, 
I mean, this was like a, a tour of Babylon, you know, it was just, just absolutely amazing. So that was great. What was great is that it was innovative. So it was the first program of its kind. So the, the uh, directors and the lecturers were finding their feet as much as we were. So that was very exciting. So we had a chance to feedback and, and you know, help create the, the program of the future. And I think for me personally, being in Sweden as well. So I'm a big fan of Scandinavian countries. Mm. And um, it was very exciting to study abroad and be in Scandinavia and be in Sweden. So what is so inspiring about Sweden and the Scandinavian countries then? I mean, from curiosity, <laughs> so we're the Swedish people. We don't, we don't see any it. advantages of ourselves. <laughs> um, it's only you're only two hours by flight from the UK, but you have a very strong identity in terms of your your country your culture the values you believe in the way you go about doing things that is actually very for me very exotic mm. you know it's it's i think it's is as much exotism in in sweden as there is going to kenya for me yes, in a very yes, different way yes. so you are very different um and there is a certain pragmatism about sweden i think is wonderful there is a certain closeness to nature, which I think is is absolutely amazing. It's it's it always struck me that struck me that in Sweden the the environmental piece as a social piece is a given. It's not to be debated. It just is, and you just have to find a way of how to do it. It's a how, not the whether or. And that was very refreshing and a fantastic place to do a master's um, in that kind of kind of environment. So, would you recommend it to some? To others, I'd, to, to I would sell spending a year in Sweden to anyone, <laughs> who, oh. anyone who wants to, who wants to hear me. Absolutely. Lovely, lovely. Okay. <laughs> so after the your um, education, you had a couple of years of consultancy. That's that correct. Right? That's and, right. And yeah. uh, how did did you enjoy that role? So my first, um, yes, absolutely. So I had uh, the great pleasure to join a a very uh, famous consultancy in the UK called Sustainability, with a capital A in the middle. And this was an amazing opportunity again, because this consultancy was a consultancy, but yet acting as an NGO was a little bit of a hybrid. So they had a relationship with corporate corporations, delivering project for them at a price, but they were also doing publication, challenging corporations to behave differently. So this is kind of dual purpose, you know, half, half consultancy and half um, advocacy advocacy piece that was very interesting and I now work for a very inspiring man called John Elkington who is the chairman and founder of sustainability and this was a great honor and a great way to start in the in in the field and then you started in the telecom business in 2002 mm-hmm. and uh, you have been there in 14 years now if, if, if you look back how has the telecom market changed for a large operator so it has changed a great deal. Um, gosh, 14 years, that's, that doesn't sound We didn't want to remind you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> that is not what I need to hear. Um, I remember, so when I first joined the, the telecom industry, so I've changed companies. I've done two companies in that, in that, in that space of time. Uh, at the time, we were advocating change when, when it comes to something called conflict minerals. There's certain minerals that go in mobile phones that get sourced mainly in the Congo. A uh, mineral called coltan, and at the time, this was a very lonely battle of the sustainability people within the organisation saying, 
we must care, we must do something about this because it's fueling civil war, it's destroying the livelihood of orangutans in, in DRC, and we've got to do something about it. And it was a very lonely um, conflict, a very lonely conflict, very lonely uh, battle that we had with our own business. And now actually this conflict mineral piece has been legislated for in the States. Mm. So actually it's now become, it's about implementing policies inside the business to be compliant. It makes it quite boring actually, but at least it's something is happening. So that's one of the things that I've seen happen. One of the other things, I mean, at the time, uh, a few years ago, it was more about, I would say, things like uh, carbon. And it's still about carbon because we have a strong, very big carbon footprint, which is getting worse because the more advanced mobile phones are, the more the network needs to be powerful to um, to support that. But now it's it's become much more complex in a way to manage its issues around privacy, freedom of expression, safe use of mobile phones. So it's much more about the use, user end and the solutions are much more diffuse. And there isn't, there isn't a simple answer to this. So, you know, you can, engineers can look at a, a mobile mast and look at how efficient they can turn it in terms of engineering. But when you come to human rights and different cultures and what's acceptable, not acceptable, that becomes actually far more interesting um, in my mind. And um, and also what has changed, and that's really close to my heart, is it's not sustainability in the telecom industry is not just about mitigating the negative impact that we have, you know, lessening the bad. It's about how we can use mobile technology and data and communication as a force for good. And that's a piece that I'm particularly really excited about. Mm. So it's how can we use mobile to really transform healthcare in emerging market? How we can use mobile to make education system more efficient in South Africa, Kenya, Mozambique? It's how can we use mobile to enable worker consultation in factories in China, the people manufacturing our own handset, you know, allowing us to ask them you know, how they're being treated directly. So it's it's a whole new, it's that innovation piece, which I think is there now, that actually wasn't there when I started in the telecoms. How are you staffing the sustainability team in, in Vodafone? Uh, do you have a, like a sustainability manager in each country or? How? So yes, we have, um, so we have 20 different local markets and in each of those markets, there are representative who are the liaison partners with the, the headquarters. Mm. But um, it is up to each local market to decide, you know, how many they need and what they do and because they have to make it. We're very, very strong in our culture in terms of local power and local decision making. Mm. And, and actually in Sweden, we don't have Vodafone anymore. We It's called Telenor. Telenor. So we, are, we don't have what we call footprint in, mm. in Sweden, but we have uh, partners. So we would serve some of your enterprise customers in partnership with local telecom operators. Mm. So that's what we would do, absolutely. Mm. So I couldn't justify to be here on the basis of our Vodafone footprint. It's more from, uh, I would say, sentimental reasons. <laughs> Coming back to Sweden. <laughs> we appreciate back to Sweden. But we so, like it. But so here. where is the sustainability function hosted in the organization? Is it in each country? 
what's that what you said or? so it's in each country as well as headquarters mm. uh, we are based in London and in London we act as a I would say we're a very light function because the way we operate is we work with various functions like the terminals people and the technology people and the consumer people the marketing people and we basically ensure we work with them over time to ensure that they have their own sustainability lead in their functions so for example in in our function called supply chain we have now sustainability lead specialist in that supply chain function who is actually taking the charge of any sustainability related issues for supply chain and he does a fabulous job so it's i know it's sometimes i think it sounds a bit of a an excuse for a smaller team but our business really see our success as being as small team as possible centrally and as many people as possible in the operating market as well as a function because this is where the real work happens does that mean that it's only you or do you share your kind of function with oh uh, no group? no no absolutely absolutely not so to explain i'm 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 head of sustainability before enterprise mm. so i'm head of sustainability but i'm not i've got a specialist uh focused mm. my job is to focus on uh enterprise businesses mm. so vodafone has for 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 enterprise customers they have customers like Skanska, who's here today, who I spoke to, Unilever, Nestle, Diageo, IKEA, all those guys are our customers globally. And what I do is I engage with those enterprise customers to look at how we can use our technology to address the sustainable growth challenges. That's what I focus on. So we, but we have a, a, the rest of the team focuses on um, environment. We have somebody working on uh, electromagnetic fields. Um, we have somebody working on more like human rights and freedom of expression. And we have the people doing the foundation work as well, which is very separate from uh, sustainability matters. So there is there is a bigger team out there. But um, my job is, is specialist within that team, if that makes sense. I need to try to kill a prejudice and say this is my Go kind of we all have our crusades and we one like of my, it. Yeah, on. one of my crusades <laughs> is, is that when we heard it today a million times already, people say if you don't have the CEO on board, nothing is ever gonna happen. It needs to be it needs to be positioned with the CEO, otherwise it won't happen. And I don't believe that's true. That's my crusade. I think that's an illusion. I think there are many good things happening without the CEO ever having a clue. Would you kind of join me in my crusade, or would you say no? It's really true. You need your kind of, you need your board, and you need the CEOs and the kind of top people to be on board. So yes, so yes and no. I think taking the example of Vodafone, Vodafone has achieved a lot without our CEO being vocal. I would say our CEO is very supportive, but he's not one of the CEOs that will stand on the platform and bang on about sustainability as a as a standalone topic. But he is very supportive. Mm. And what he believes in, most of all, and that's really int- important, is that sustainability is not a side topic. It's about, it needs to be integral to the business. He's really, really passionate about this. It can't be, you know, it can't be also business here and then sustainable reporting or anything on the side you really want the two to merge together which is quite confusing for some because they think oh he's not really pro sustainability but he but he is he truly is so to go back to your question 
It can happen without the CEO being vocal about it, but it does help to have senior people, you know, pushing the agenda forward. So, for example, we have um, a lady called Serpil who is um, leading all our Asia, Middle Eastern um, and Africa um, activity for the business from, um, from the executive team. And she is a very strong advocate of anything around women empowerment, um, sustainability related, innovation. And actually, whenever she gets onto an agenda, things will just happen. So you've got to learn to find those people as well. But it doesn't have to be just a CEO. You've got to work with what you've got. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for commenting on that. that <laughs> so rather going into the grey area where I live when you find the right people. You you were mentioning before that uh, the force for good and, and driving the innovation of telecommunication. And you were mentioning, you know, some of the examples. But could you choose one of your favorite stories and explain to people why telecommunication can actually really be a force for good? And give us the tale of of what does it actually do because i think some people hear it but don't completely understand it what i often get that question people will you know beyond the jargon what exactly mm. what are we exactly are mm. we talking about so it's i have got some very very concrete example for you um one of them is um is is it is a project that i visited in south africa I went to a province called KwaZulu-Natal, um, which is a short flight from Johannesburg, is on, on the sea. And um, I went to see a, a healthcare, a primary healthcare center. So it's a, it's a healthcare center which are at the, right at the bottom of the healthcare system. And it was completely crowded, people waiting in, you know, in meeting room for, for ages, and there were doctors there and everything. And it looked, it looked fairly organized, quite, you know, quite busy, but well organized. And actually, the key issue there was availability of drugs. So it was very likely that those people would travel for a whole day, two hours, whatever it is, spend money on a bus to get there. And they'll be seen by a doctor and they'll be correctly diagnosed, but they wouldn't get, it's like, oh, sorry, but you know, to treat that disease, we need three drugs and we've only got one out of the three. And the issue there is not that the government doesn't have the money to supply the drugs. That is not the case. What the problem is with, with the situation is that the stock is are badly managed. It's logistics, pure business logistics, practical thing. So how does that relate to us is probably the question that's coming to your mind. Well, very simply, because we've worked with the Ministry of Health to do um, a mobile stock taking system where the nurses, a designated nurse in that healthcare center basically does a stock management, a record of how many of which medicine is left in a cupboard every week on a set day. And that data gets sent to a centralized platform. We then can predict when, when which drug needs to be resent to that center and when, rather than the old system was, they would wait until it would you know, run out and then fill in a paper form that would sit there for ages and then be sent through whatever means. And then it take another three weeks to deliver. Mm. Now we know that, you know, when there's 10 left or 20 left or 30 left, now it's time to trigger the uh, the order again. And that is so simple. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazingly simple, but it's completely changed. Our stock management, uh, stock management for drugs is being, is being done. 
And I know that we've tried on KwaZulu-Natal and the Ministry of Health loves it so much. They want to use this as a as a excellent center for the rest of the country. They mm. want it absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and then means, yeah, and then mobile telephony is, is the crucial thing as well of not being you know you don't have to be locally connected. It's not as costly. It's but not that mobile it's telephone. not that costly, and it means that it it can be done at 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 any point. Um, the nurse can go into the stock room with the mobile. Um, it's it's very simple to use. It's cheap. It's, it's cheap. cheap. It's very very cheap, and it's it's a tool that everybody is very comfortable with. Yeah. So even when with the smaller healthcare centers, which may not have a computer system and may not may, may not be linked, they can use that mobile. Very very cheap. Mm. Very simple. See, I'm showing my color now as being a mobile phone. Um, engaged committed <laughs> person <laughs> but if we flip the coin of communication and mobile communication now you know changing basically how we live and how we act mm-hmm. um, we can also see that young kids today has been using the mobile phone and reaching internet in another degree and I looked into research saying that in 2013 53% of the 9 to 12 years old had daily use of internet through the mobile phone and the number for 13 to 16 years old is 88%. We're reaching a, a degree where very young kids can reach anything online and they're spending their whole time doing it. Yeah. So it's we're touching on an addiction and you know is that sustainability for Vodafone? Is that something you're dealing with or talking about? So you've got two two heads here looking at you. You've got the Cristal working for Vodafone, <laughs> who's actually a fairly fairly proactive company in, on that front, and you've got the Cristal being a mother of two children mm. uh, who's six and nine. So it's interesting because as a Cristal for Vodafone and before I work used to work for Orange, I had a very theoretical academic view of those issues you know i i worked when i was at orange i we were the first to produce um uh, a pamphlet like a booklet for parents for responsible use of mobile phone to educate parents about the things they need to 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 look out for but that that's interesting because i thought you know that was amazing and we did we did so well but actually it didn't really sink in at a very personal level and it recently did with my two girls who are six and nine when um, they've been given a second-hand iPhones. We're not connected to the network, but they're connected to Wi-Fi. And I found that my youngest was filming herself doing um, instruction videos of Play-Doh and Barbies and then came to my husband and said, can you just put that on YouTube, will you? Mm. And that's really scary because she's one step away being connected to Wi-Fi to actually posting on a video and she's six. Mm. So I, I totally get our customers being nervous. And I think it's most of the time because parents are behind their kids. True. So we feel like we're, we can't control because we're behind. So this is not necessarily Vodafone answer, but it is also a Vodafone answer. And, and the key is in providing the information for free choice, for informed choices. So, for example, with my girls, what I will say to them is, okay, I, you know, well, first of all, they have to they have to ask when when to use a device. So that I I want to be I want the number of hours I spend on a device to be to be controlled. But once they're on there, I make them responsible of their own learning in a way. I told them that there there might be things which are scary and feel wrong, 
but they should speak up about it. And the dialogue is a very important part of it. And I think that's what's important. And believing in the nanny state where, you know, if filters on their own is not going to sort everything. And if we, it would be wrong to give parents just filters and say, you, you, you use that and you're just fine. That's because not you right. are providing filters. We are providing yeah. filters and it's, it's one part of the answer. As long as parents don't think, yeah, I've done my bit, um, everything is okay, everything's safe, I don't need to be a parent anymore. So I think nothing will replace dialogue and common sense. And, and it is difficult to find, to find the right balance. Mm. It is difficult. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I saw something recently on, um, on the internet with regard to some studies about the optimal, the maximum number of hours that should be given to children of different ages on various different devices, because it's not just mobile these days. Mm. It's a mobile, it's the iPad, it's tele, television on demand, it's the Nintendo. It's, it's, there are so many screen, screen times with different, different drawbacks. And how, as a parent, do you legislate for that? becomes an absolute minefield. Yeah, and how do you actually dialogue about it? Because it's a, I mean, it's up to everybody, but it's still a shared problem. And I, I was also thinking about bullying and social harassment and those things that were done on the play yard or, you know, schoolyard. But they're also entering internet and they're becoming a public, going into the public domain and the scale of them can mm. become so much bigger. So how do we dialogue about those things as a you know responsible behavior, shared responsibility between operators and parents and children? And so again, for the operators, I think there's there's number of things that can be done, um, making information available through the web, even though the parents really have to know that it's there through our shops. Um, when I was at uh, in my previous job at Orange, um, we did a fantastic piece of work with um, teachers. We did some videos, some really cool videos with some um, bespoke. Uh, we chose a band, a music band, to create some tunes to go with those videos. And we created some scenarios with some youngsters um, about teaching. Not about teaching, because as soon as you get into that teaching mode, the kids will shut down mm. and they'll think, you're just old and boring and you can tell me what to do and what not to do. And they shut down and they don't listen anymore. No, we just told stories. We did little story, almost little episode. And one of the episodes was a story of this girl who had been on the internet and had been bullying someone really badly uh, through Facebook. And she was going for an interview for a job uh, in a clothes shop at the weekend. And um, basically the employer who was interviewing her had in front of her, not her CV, but she had a trace of what she'd been saying and doing on the internet. So that was her CV, basically, that was being followed. So she was being questioned about the language and the abuse that she'd given to that other girl. And of course, you can imagine mm. she didn't get the job. Mm. So suddenly, that was a different way of teaching children, actually, for your own self, for your own self, you know, interest, not a good idea. But not patronizing them from it's bad to do it, you know, you mustn't do it, otherwise you'll be punished. Because that's not gonna sink in. Mm. So it's a different way of engaging. So there's different ways to get through through the parents, uh, but also through the schools. Um, so different different channels. Mm. 
you, you share an approach uh, with many other <coughs> companies today, um, and that is that you work closely with the stakeholders to define your key issues. Mm -hmm. And you use actually a materially matrix. Mm -hmm. Materialize. It's quite hard. Yeah. <laughs> Materiality <laughs> matrix, yes. Could you tell us a little more about that? How does it work? So how does it work? So on a year yearly basis, we try to reflect on, um, it's an internal exercise. We, obviously, the sustainability team engages with a, a range of stakeholders and a range of issues, and we try to have an internal debate about how those issues have evolved. So it's not a, a scientifically, you know, exact tool. And I think what's not... what. What's not interesting is where the issue sits on the matrix, but it's a movement of that issue from one year to the other. So we can have internal conversation about, for example, privacy and human rights and freedom of expression becoming higher on the agenda um, because we've, we've engaged NGOs on a proactive basis, because we've had, um, you know, we've had um, issues in the marketplace about it for a number of reasons. So it's, it's a... It's not a scientific tool, it's more of a... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Internal reflection, forward-looking tool. I would say, yeah. Okay. Who's part of the reflection then? The yearly reflection. So trying to pull out kind of tips to the people mm -hmm. <laughs> how to work with the matrix. So like that. we, so it's a, the sustainability team engages on a on a on a regular basis with various function in the business. So before we use it to do, we used to do it just between ourselves. But then what we did is we did the first draft as a materiality matrix and then um, shared it with the various our various point of contact in the functions to ensure that to do a bit of sanity checking about whether, you know, they had the same view. Mm. Um, and you have interesting debate because obviously each of those functions tend to think that their their issues are more important than everybody else's issues, as you can imagine. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to have that, you know, put you know, get get their input as well, of course. And would you also kind of have a stakeholder dialogue outside the company as well on an annual basis? Or would that be, you know, part of the ongoing relationship? So it's interesting. I, I, I had this question on the panel today. To, today um, and my first answer to this was businesses have always done stakeholder engagement. 
So this idea of the sustainability team being in charge solely of stakeholder engagement is for me, you know, absurd. Yes. Uh, completely absurd. I, I've been there, done that, and I, and I think well, that's a little bit, um, a little bit naive. Um, I think so. The, the, the first thing is to, however, is to ensure that the dialogues that all exist already is not wooden and not, and not, you know, very is not too narrow. So, for example, when you engage with the enterprise customers, it's important that you're not just talking about okay, how many mobiles do they want, how many minutes for how many employees, but you start talking about their sustainability pain points, how we can help them and innovate with them. How we can offer, you know, maybe a buyback, um, a buyback and recycling system for their handset, things like that. So it's not just about the traditional commercial points. So I think that's the first one. And I think when it comes to new stakeholder engagement, yes, the sustainability team is useful when there are specific issues. So, for example, um, when we faced issues in in Egypt. And there was a revolution and um, we were heavily criticized by NGOs for shutting down the network. But the government asked us to. And you know what? We only have a license to operate there because the government give us a license. So it was very hard for the NGOs to understand what it was like to be operating in Egypt at the time. And the fact that we actually acted in the best interest of our employees to defend them and we did the best that we could. So with those particular particular NGOs, there needs to be a specific dialogue, which is about a specific issue. So we organize a trip to Egypt where we make them we made them meet the CEO, the people that work in the shop, interview some customers, to just get let them feel the reality on the ground. So that would be a, a bespoke dialogue that we organized because it was it was required and we were the most credible neutral point in the company to do so because we didn't have a commercial you know a direct commercial interest to you know to lead the conversation one way or the other um, but generally it's more about changing the content of the stakeholder dialogue that already exists rather than coming up a whole new yeah a whole new stakeholder dialogue um, that's, set that's, up. That's what I understood you saying on the stage as well. As you, we're, we've been always been talking to our stakeholders, but the content of what we're talking about is different. But aren't there stakeholders which you, as a sustainability team, would see as being more important, or maybe stakeholders that, from commercial basis, wouldn't be seen? I'm thinking about what we talked about now, like the right of the children, of looking at from a child perspective. Maybe that what's I'm trying to find are there kind of stakeholders that you on the sustainability team would say these are important while the you know the usual commercial communication with the customers would see differently on. Yeah, so so yes, yeah, so I guess it's 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 issues it can be issues led. So for example on um on tax, which is an issue that came up on 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 the panel from my my colleague from hand in hand. Um we were heavily criticized on tax and we took the decision to do to really go all out and go forward with transparent reporting country by country tax by tax all the single every single level of tax that we could pay and exposing where there were gaps and where we were really low really high and in doing so we did some engagement with some ngos to ask them for their input so that we did. That some, would be a specific group. Though, so that's very specific. So 
as a result of the Egypt situation, what we now have is something called the industry dialogue, where we are basically dialoguing. We've got a group with all the other um, network operators as well as other internet players who may be subject to the same requests from the governments that we have. And we basically work together to come up with a charter of what we should all agree to do when we get asked to do things that we don't think are right in terms of human rights, mm. but which we have to do because legally we have to. So, for example, in that one, very practically, we've, we agree that if we get asked to do things like switch off the network or disseminate information through our, you know, our network, yes, we will do so, but the condition is that we will publish the name on the internet of the person who's asked us to do that from the government. Mm, yeah. And we will, we will publish a notice saying, you know, we've been asked by this guy to do this and this is what's happening on that date. And you will all receive a text message saying this. Did you do that in the Egypt case? or No, because the Egypt was... case was when we did basically our learning. And I, I say oh, again, yeah. we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything wrong. We've a- acted mm. in the best, in the best possible way. But in terms of human rights, we understand why some people are, you know, um, I angered by it, but we had no choice, otherwise our people would have lost their lives. Um, but there is one country, I won't name the country, where a very similar situation happened. Things were heating up and we were asked by the government to um, basically shut down the network to stop people communicating with one another to rebel and to organize um, demonstrations. And we put the plan into action and the problem went away. That's and, brilliant. But that's not the kind of thing that we can shout about, as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to avoid mentioning the name yeah. of that country. But it's secretly, I mean, I'm, you know, within the sustainability team, we were absolutely ecstatic because it's the best yeah. non-visible, non-shouty success that you can have that you never put in your sustainability report. But why yet it's you, a very powerful you, one. Wouldn't you be able to publish it but not mentioning the name like you're doing right now and actually say these are the cases that we had? Because it's, it is an interesting. And we're getting into a grey area where information flow you know, needs to happen. But you know, the evaluation that you're doing yeah. could teach people, us people quite could, a lot. Could pe- people could easily, I think, deduct yeah. looking at the countries where we operate. And then looking at in that financial year where yeah, troubles, true, political true. troubles yeah. happened, yeah. they could probably find out. Yeah. And obviously we have a government, our stakeholders, and we need to respect as well. So we don't, we want them to do the right thing, but we don't want to humiliate them. You can imagine in terms of stakeholder trust, the damage this would do if we went public with this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, unless you had a kind of a, a shared commitment uh, among all the operators saying this is our policy of doing it. Oh, we do. This is so a fair game. So of, this, so this, is, this is it. We work, we work with the other operators to agree to the same yeah. standards. So we all stick together and think yeah. we will stand strong because yeah. if one operator refuses to do it and the other says, fine, hmm. you know, it's free game, then hmm. it's not going to go very far. But I think the next frontier is to get the government to sign up for it. True. true. We need to get them to agree to say, Okay, this is those are the rules of the game, but obviously they give us a license. Because they I think control in, us. I think George Kelly kind of pointing out transparency is the, one of the driving forces behind CSR, and I, I sometimes feel that we're talking so much about transparency, but then even if I'm kind of would claim to be somewhat professional on sustainability in CSR, me reading lots of these reports doesn't actually tell me anything as of yet. 
And if you start tracing stuff down to detail, you get so little information. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, the urge to go public with these things and actually get the governments to agree on, yes, let's have a transparent agreement and have people have opinions about it. Mm. I mean, I'm, I know I'm sounding slightly I think, naive, but I think, <laughs> I think good idea. <laughs> I, think the day, I think the day that we have a, a government officially signing up to this, um, to our rules of the game, then yes, it will be worse you know, communicating, then mm. it would be completely fine. What we've done in, in the case of that country is to use the tool behind the scene to influence an outcome. But obviously we, we can never be too open about having done so. Mm. So it's mm. an internal little secret victory of ours. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. It's so a good for victory. the moment, it's a very for, good victory. for the moment, we can't shout. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I guess you haven't discussed so much with your stakeholders is uh, does the common consumer really grasp the degree of information that you have as an operator on on him or her? So I think it's a very, 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 very good question. One which is at the heart of of our business, really, because increasingly what's becoming interesting about business model is not it's not so much going to be about talk time on the mobile phone the future is all about big data and it's a gold mine for you as a large and operator. it's it's and it's a potential gold mine which if we if we if we miss out on it you know it's it's it would be a big mistake however and this is where i'm actually really proud of the company i work for we want to do it right not just because it's ethical and it's the right thing to do but because it's in our best commercial interest to do it right. Because we know that we can't fool customers. We know that we we can't operate despite them. So what's, there is a, a team in the business who, who runs what's called the, and it's, it's just, I would say, looking at the age of the company, it's just, just at the, its infancy, is a permission and preferences program. So customers appreciate receiving information that is that is relevant for them that's mm. one however mm. they do not want to feel like their data is is being you know is being taken away from them without them knowing so it's a fine balance and it's a great commercial opportunity for us as well so what we've the business is going for is a permission and preferences program where the the customers is put in a driving seat and he's making all the choices so they're defining a number of, you know, a number of, let's say, not triggers, a number of different things that customer could say yes or no to, going from, um, you know, maybe their browser, where they browse the internet, being, being looked at, so we know the kind of stuff they're interested in, whether they want to receive um, emails, advertising emails or not. So it's all about putting them in a driving seat and giving them all the decisions. So if they want to say absolutely no to everything, which, for example, I know my parents would do, they would say, I just want nothing from you. Mm. Just the least I get, the better. <laughs> then that's fine. We're in a position with technology to to respect that. But obviously there's some youngsters who, if they're doing windsurfing, would love to receive emails about, the latest windsurfing competition or windsurfing products or whatever. And that's fine because that's, that suits their expectation of what their privacy line works or not 
I'm thinking to myself that we're talking about stakeholders being a very important part of the sustainability agenda and stakeholders involved in defining what is the most important thing or not the most important thing for us to do. But my feeling is that when it comes to this big data and when it comes to, to integrity, we're not having we're, we're, the awareness level amongst the customers of today is not that high on understanding what you actually got, that gold mine that we talked about. Do you th- well, think people see it as But well, this is why with this, with this program, mm. we want to come forward as a customer yeah. and put out all those choices clear to them. So they know exactly yeah. and they press the button that they want to press yeah. and switch off everything else. But would you agree that the, the debate about integrity and the, the insight to what big data actually means, is, it, is that, do you think that's a public debate today? Because what you're actually doing is that you're giving a stakeholder a choice which they may not be aware of them having yet as of yet they don't reflect on you understanding what they what they've kind of surfed and you know who they called and where they've been and and all that well that's that's partly because of that lack of knowledge that they have at the moment mm. which then lead on to fears which is sometime unfounded and sometime founded are we at the stage of fear today do you think that the, the oh, absolutely kind of, absolutely okay people are kind of aware and, and they're they are aware and they don't really understand the detail oh. they um but they are very fearful and yeah. very defensive majority of people defend defensive their of their of their privacy so some countries are more fearful than others so for example germany you've been to germany and that is a no-go zone yeah you know the idea that anyone can have access to your information is is absolutely unacceptable yeah. even if it's anonymized so i mean to give you an example of where you know anonymized mobile data can be super helpful so for example we can um, one of the things that we can offer enterprise is by monitoring in a in a anon- anonymized way mm. who enters a building you understand the occupancy of a building So you're able to see which part of your building are best used or not used so that the facilities people can decide, okay, this building is costing us that much, but, you know, the traffic is not that good, it's not that great, the occupancy is not great, so we could just maybe rationalize how many buildings we have. And this is a great use because it it leads to more efficiency and it's anonymized. So we're not not looking at AMD-specific data. But I use that example with um, a customer in Germany, and they reacted very strongly to this. Even if the data is anonymized, if any of our employees know that we're tracking their mobile phone to see the movement of people within the building, That's they would be furious. Yeah. So we did it ourselves on our HQ in Newbury, uh, in, in, in near London, about an hour from London. And we wanted to see how many people were actually using the building, each part of the campus. So we do, we can see on a map basically, basically one person is one mobile. And we can track, you know, how many people at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock. We can see that how much is being used on a Friday, how much is being on Tuesday. We can see, you know, so that we can hopefully organize things differently mm-hmm. and give different policies in terms of working from home or whatever. And some people react, didn't react very well even though the information is completely anonymized yeah. we're not we're not looking but people sometimes think well am i being tracked are they going to check whether i've actually come in you know come in on time like in a factory where you put your card to check in 
Um, and your know-how should be quite high compared to the kind of general user yeah. in, in that area. So we, you're saying that in that, some countries it's a big issue, in some countries it might not be a big issue yeah. or debate. So in France today. and Germany, for example, people are much more defensive of their privacy, of their privacy, dispersional space. There's a difference between the generations. I mean, do older people react more than the young people or opposite? Oh, that's a good question. You haven't uh, seen the... That's a very, very good question. I would tend to think that older generation are more protective. On the other hand, they are less aware than the But they are people. less aware. Um, and the youngsters, the younger generation is probably more weary, probably because they know more as well. Mm. So I actually don't know. So it's a good, it's a good question. I wouldn't want to generalize and, and fall into cliches by answering that question. Mm. I'm not really sure. When entering into a contract with an operator, and we have an also sounds, we're just giving out on sounds, yeah. aren't we? Uh, we? We are, we say that we are in the end of the sustainability business day, so that's where all the sound comes in. And Torbjörn can't hunt everybody down, so no. we'll just keep on talking, is that. Uh, when entering into a relationship with an operator, as of today, it's a very often a mixed contract. You would provide telecommunication, but you would also provide the handset. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it would be this kind of the drive of getting new phones annually. And, you know, you would not end, you would not stop using it because it breaks down. You would stop using it because you have a new offer. And you can't even, I mean, I tried to call my operator and say, we as a, I used to run an offer with lots of consultants and said, we don't want to join your deal of having new phone because we're happy with the old ones. And they said, oh, you have to get them. I said, I don't want them, but okay, you, you have to get them because it's in your contract. So, I mean, the, the connection between the operator deal and the hardware is that, you know, that's happening. I'm actually very surprised that your operator would force you to switch to your mobile phone. They did. Because they made us go and get them and said, you know, you need to t- get them because it's in your contract. And we said, okay, fine, we'll get them. Well, we won't use them, but, you know, we'll store them until they're broke- the other ones are broken. That is extraordinary because they usually would be very happy to um, let you carry on out of contract on the same old handset because Telia for you. (laughs) That's that's an that's an interesting interesting tactic. I mean, there are um, at least in the UK um, offers which are separate the communication from the handset. So we have what's called a SIM only tariff, where basically you can and there the the tariff is very advantageous. You know, like very much cheaper than any other tariffs where you basically turn up with any handset and we basically provide you a sim mm. and then off you go mm. you know because we are we've gotten the industry got in the habit of basically giving subsidized handset that's why we have to lock people in yeah because it takes 10 months 12 months to to break even with the communication that you're giving us every month, the fees that you're giving us every month to break even on the price of the handset. So we only start making money after X number of months, depending on the handset. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was a successful business model at the time, but talking about business model and sustainability, we think that some of the changes in sustainable world would be the business model. And this is yeah. obviously a negative business model yeah. because the tying in- It is, and it's one w- which we're, we deplore as well. So we we in a way created a bad habit in the market many years ago when we first started. This is only maybe Chriselle speaking. I don't know if, mm. if Vodafone would be saying that, but this is my view. Um, we created a, a business model that worked at the time, but to which in a way the customers are addicted to. 
you know, and I think it's in Spain, we tried a new business model where we're trying to dissociate the free subsidized handset with the communication. And it was failing really work. badly and mm. it didn't work. We, we were losing out in the market. So what do you do? Do you yeah. go back to doing what your competitors do, yeah. even though it's more sustainable, and then sink the company? That's what the customer, the customer does not like the idea of, I mean, I've got an iPhone 6, how much do they cost? Yeah. 700, 800 pounds? Yeah, we need some kind of an Uber idea of how to get out of that business model. And uh, I think Simonly is is a good Simonly is a good thing because then people who look after their handsets. Here on CSR Pod, we used to ask everyone actually the question mm-hmm. of um, if if you are if you do talk about your mistakes and also talk about the mistakes outside of the company, because everything you hear, especially like a day like this, it's the success stories, <laughs> how we did it. And this is the great things you are, we are doing. And we say that it's so much to learn from mistakes. I mean, if you talk about children, when two parents meet, they always compare, you know, I did this and I did that. And if, if one parent all, all only talks about the success for the children, it's boring and, and you don't listen to it as long as you should. I mean, so it, it's a, a very powerful thing to be able to uh, get experience from the mistakes. Mm-hmm. What is your experience of that? In terms of sustainability or my career or? In sustainability. In sustainability. Do you have any failure stories that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I've got loads. Are <laughs> <laughs> able to select one of I, them? I guess you I, don't I, share them. I normally, oh, I, actually, my my way of communicating is usually more to, to talk about the things that I'm probably not allowed to talk to you on stage, though, <laughs> than waiting to be told off when I go back to the office. Um, so the things which are, I would say, very difficult is that challenge of addressing for me my big bugbear and I talked about it on a on a TED talk recently um, is that binary thinking that companies have on the one hand companies are very good at doing philanthropy very very good at it with millions and big project and big PR and being big marketing on the other end they're also very good at making lots of money in many different markets in very difficult situation and getting the volume and you know getting the, the shareholder to pay attention but there is that space in the middle, which is the stuff that I, I personally work on, which is commercial innovation stuff, innovative stuff, which has commercial benefits on a different scale, but also delivers social good, but not in a philanthropic way. I'm very passionate about it. And it is very difficult in the business to, to find, to, 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 to find the right spot because people revert very often to one or the other. Is it's finding that middle ground of where where is it going to stick? So so that's still very challenging. It's challenging for me for me as I as I speak. So I've had loads of success. Isn't it's one little one little battle after one other that you win, but you never feel that you've won a war. Um, and a war is a positive war. It's a war for good, but the war is never over. So yeah, so as I go back to the office tomorrow, I will still have the same the same challenges. They're still there. 
But you're still in a good industry to actually find that space because the space when it comes to telecommunication and building a good society, having information flow freely should be there. Is that kind of... So there's, there's also a challenge because a lot of the stuff that we do already has a good sustainability story naturally attached yes. to it. So yeah. for example, and we're blessed with this, but it's also it's also a curse at the same time. So we have something called mobile payment, M-Pesa. As I said earlier today, we churn about, we transact about 47 billion euros every year through M-Pesa, which is the same as the ninth biggest company in the UK, um, the size of the ninth biggest company in the UK. And so we have a lot of positive stories about how mobile payments is changing access to financial services in emerging market, which is a great story, right? So the tendency for the business is maybe sometimes to think, well, hey, we're delivering to social good. Why do we need to do more? So where I come in is to get the company to innovate, to do new products and services for enterprise customers, products which make a big difference to how they operate. But the business tends to think, well, you know, how much, how quick? Yeah. yeah. And I said to them, listen, I'm not, we're not giving away that for free. But the revenues or the, the volume generated through the services are more, I mean, we've, we've got, you know, we've got a, a, a huge company. So every innovation looks quite small in comparison. So that, there comes the, the, the challenge, basically. Mm. You've got a really interesting job. I'm kind of envious. It sounds <laughs> really fun. Well, I love it. I still yeah. get up in the morning with a spring yeah. in my step. So, yeah. yes. When you when you turn for a source of inspiration, what you know, a boring grey day in the office when you really don't feel like being, you know, where would you turn? Where would you? Sounds or? a bit sounds a bit corny, and I I I can't, I can't even believe I'm saying that. But actually, the best remedy is to go home mm. and see your children mm. because they just don't care yeah. what you've been through through the day, and they will basically tell you what happened in the playground, and. You know, when is my next birthday party? Who's going to come to my next birthday party? And are we doing a cake this weekend? And and it's all about them. And I think that's really refreshing. So that's that's the best cure. <laughs> I think it was very lovely. It wasn't corny at all. It was lovely. <laughs> thank you very much for being with that's us. Okay. And thank talking you. to us. It was thank enjoyable. Mm. Good. Good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.